Hello, hello. This is Vogue Stories, audiobooks by Kathy Colas. Today we have episode four of The Wedding Crasher by Nikki Stern. Sam and Terry reunite, the first time since a brief fling several years earlier. Though the reunion may be awkward on one level, Sam is relieved to find their working rhythm is intact. They'll need to have each other's backs as they assemble a task force with representatives of a myriad of state agencies. This meeting is a cakewalk compared with their first encounter with a fearful public, a hungry press, and a couple of opportunistic politicians. According to the clock Sam was trying not to watch, Terry walked into the two-story building on Main Street at exactly 5.23 p.m. He ran a hand through his hair, tugged on his damp collar, tried to smooth his rumpled slacks, and took a minute to look around. Sam peeked at him from behind her door like a shy schoolgirl. When she stepped out of her office, she saw his hands go to his stomach. The gesture was both unconscious and self-conscious. He needn't have worried. He was still lean, if somehow more substantial. A bit craggier, which gave his face character. Despite the long drive, he seemed more relaxed. Maybe the steady friend to whom he'd alluded had something to do with that. And what did he see? A well-run office? A staff hard at work? A sheriff who changed in the last two years? Thinner? if her prominent cheekbones and loose slacks were any indication. Less rested? Without a doubt. The occasional silver strand that mixed with the rich mahogany of the hair she'd pulled back in a ponytail. A faint web of fine lines at the corner of her pale jade eyes. The ever-present forehead crease. Sheriff Tate, he called out. You're looking well. Hope the long drive didn't present too many difficulties, Special Agent Sloan. She felt like a character in a play. Do you need something cold to drink or hot? She lowered her voice. You don't know how glad I am to see you. Feelings mutual. Were they talking about the case? She couldn't be sure. He headed to the coffee station and helped himself to a large mug. Let me just refuel. Don't drink it black she said quietly. Kaylee's coffee is kind of strong. Terry took a sip and nearly gagged. He managed to lift his cup and smile at Kaylee, who tracked his movements like a hawk. In the privacy of Sam's locked office, he held the steaming mug away from him as if it were poison. Holy crap, that's hardcore. Tried to tell you. Dump it out the window. That's what everyone else does. Most of us in the department steer clear. All we need is something else to contribute to our acid stomachs and sleepless nights. Terry placed his briefcase on her desk, pried open the nearest window, and poured the coffee on an unsuspecting bed of pansies. He looked out after them. That poor flower bed, he remarked. You must do a lot of replanting. A fair amount. Sam pulled a Coca-Cola Classic out of a cooler she kept near her desk for visitors who fell victim to her assistant's coffee. Here you go. He drank half a bottle in one gulp. Better? Absolutely. He looked drained. Should she suggest dinner first? 
give him time to recharge. Not that she wanted to spend an hour on small talk. Here's the thing, she began. Tell me about... Their words collided. <laughs> Great minds and all that, Terry said with a laugh. You go first. Did Daryl catch you up? You mean on what TBI didn't discover at the scene? I'm afraid so. Nothing, Terry. No fingerprints, no footprints, no DNA, no blood or skin trace belonging to anyone but the victim. Nate's people were thorough. As for the body, it's practically been sterilized. Just like the other crime scenes. It's all the same. Small white satin pillow, like the kind you see in a casket or at a communion. Cheap candles, maybe purchased at a five and dime. Flowers could come from anywhere. A garden, a field, a florist shop. Shoes appear slightly used. Thrift shop or garage sale. Stockings and garter are new, though. Who knew those were still around? Obviously not you, Terry said. He ventured a smile she didn't share. Not my thing, Terry. I can tell you about the dress, though. It's been altered. Part old and part new. The new part adds more modesty, believe it or not. Made me think of Bride of Frankenstein, but the stitching is much neater. Hmm, Janet's dress was homemade. Maybe by her killer. Modern fabric, old-fashioned design. Barbara Kopeck's outfit had a vintage jacket added. No additional alterations needed. Natalie was found in her mother's gown, the one she planned to marry in. No modifications necessary. We never traced the source of Claire Hooper's dress. Actually, we did. She told him about the visit to Hattie's store. She sold three gowns that might have been used to dress Newsom, but we won't know until the clothes are released from evidence. Buyers? All three were mail order. Terry's shoulders slumped. Not helpful. What about the murder weapon? The official autopsy is tomorrow. Probably a knife plus a small cleaver. Sounds like our guy. Welcome to my world. I've pulled together a task force. We're going to meet in the morning. Take a look, see if there's anyone I need to add. Terry scanned the list she handed him. Looks like you have who you need. We better start the meeting early. We need to hold a joint press conference tomorrow afternoon. So soon? Sam couldn't keep the dismay out of her voice. Can't we at least wait until we have all the forensic reports? The situation isn't ideal, Sam. Calvin Jakes, the FBI's regional PR guy, will run it. We'll keep it short. You know as well as I do how these things work. We have a second dead woman in two years dressed like a bride. The victim is a high-powered broker from Nashville. The serial killer who's been murdering brunettes across three states is still at large. Probably still here. When word gets out, Sam thought of the earlier visit with Hattie McCoy. I think it already has. They didn't know the half of it. Overnight, the online version of Pickett County Press quoted a reliable source within the sheriff's office as having credible knowledge the homicide was a victim of the wedding crasher, a notorious serial killer who last struck the area when Sheriff Tate was new on the scene. The report also confirmed the presence of Special Agent Terry Sloan, the FBI officer who'd been pursuing the killer for years. 
By the time Sam got in the next morning, a reporter from Nashville's main daily, The Tennessean, had already called the office and had also reached out to Madison Precinct Captain, according to Eddie Gould. Meanwhile, Kaylee discovered the hashtag, hashtag Return of the Wedding Crasher, gaining ground on social media. It's hitting the news wires, she announced. We're going to be swamped. You'll need to handle all the case-related inquiries until we coordinate with the FBI's press machine. I already heard from Agent Sloan's man in Memphis this morning, Mr. Jakes. I guess you and Agent Sloan must have sent him a statement last night. The press conference is this afternoon. She smiled, energized. Don't worry, Sheriff. I know exactly how to handle callers. I'm good at stonewalling. Oh, and I've got coffee set up for your meeting. The task force assembled at 8.30. Abdi, Daryl Cutler, Nate Fillmore, Doc Holloway, and Eddie Gould represented their various employers. The state police sent Captain Gerald McHenry, a practiced investigator. The Tennessee District Attorney General's office assigned a lawyer named Karen Polk to observe. The woman, a petite blonde, sat with her head down, eyes glued to her cell phone. Even a state park ranger by the name of Watson showed up in full uniform, right down to the hat. Guy looks like Smokey Bear, Sam grumbled as they entered the conference room. She made introductions, then turned to Terry. The most obvious question will be whether this is the wedding crasher, he said. Everything seems to point in that direction. Same details, from the method of the murder to the victim type, to the way the killer dressed her. The location, a glade within a park, matched the other homicides as well. Is that the official story? Eddie asked. It explains Agent Sloan's presence, Sam replied. It's not the only story, not yet. I want you and Detective Isson to look at the murder from a more conventional angle. Did the victim have any enemies? Angry clients? Disappointed exes? What does her cell phone tell you about her movements? Eddie cleared his throat. We don't have her physical phone. Or her purse. Oh, and apparently she was having a problem with her phone battery. At least that's what her fiancé told us. Who knows if or when it stopped working. What about her car GPS? How did she get up here from Madison? It's not clear, Sheriff. Her car is still at her office. Then he caught Sam's frown and added, Early days yet. What do we know about the wedding crasher, Agent Sloan? McHenry, the state police investigator, asked. 30 to 60 years of age, trained in how to use a knife or a similar instrument. A chef, ex-military, even a butcher. Although the cuts suggest someone with medical knowledge. Possibly a doctor. Dr. Death, Ranger Watson muttered. The year off is a deviation, Terry continued. Otherwise, the profile remains the same. He, I'll use one gender designation for now, is detail-oriented, meticulous, which might indicate an obsessive-compulsive disorder, likely well-hidden. That is, he doesn't come across as peculiar to the people who encounter him. He might travel for work, probably lives an ordinary life, very possibly married, possibly even a parent. Nevertheless, emotionally immature, he operates from a sense of entitlement or aggrievement, likely both. 
Well, that narrows it down, Eddie groused. Those details help, trust me. They lead us into the motives behind the killings. I assume you checked to see if the very first victim back in Florida had an ex-fiancé in her past? Captain McHenry again. We did, and she didn't. So this isn't about jealousy, Ned asked. We don't think so, Terry replied. The victims aren't viciously attacked. They're knocked out before they're cut. They're not stabbed or beaten. The finger is removed post-mortem. Our killer may see himself as behaving respectfully. The ritual may channel his wrath. He may even believe he's doing his victims a favor. Please tell me you're joking, murmured Karen Polk, without lifting her head from her phone. No one paid her any attention. I don't understand how a profile's going to help us, Ranger Watson complained. We already know the killer has it in for young brunettes. We know he kills once a year. Does it really matter why? We need something more concrete. A physical description. Some kind of evidence. The perp is young. He's old. He's strong. He walks with a limp. He's bald. He's blind. He's a she. Except we're dealing with someone who leaves no evidence. At least none we can find, Sam responded. I realize this is frustrating, but we have to consider the killer's motives if we're going to move ahead. The media will want an updated assessment. The media, Eddie scoffed. I wouldn't wish that shit show on my worst enemy. No offense, Sheriff. None taken, Eddie. If I could trade places with you, I would. At noon, Main Street began to fill with journalists, reporters, stringers, bloggers, videographers, and their support staff. Combined with the curious and the obsessed, their numbers threatened to double Birdstown's tiny population in half a day. Clay and Fentress County Sheriff's offices sent over deputies to help manage the traffic. The town's three eateries overflowed with spectators. A couple of enterprising media outlets set up their trailers at the edge of town. Others checked their people into the Sportsman Lodge Motel in Dale Hollow Lake. One of the deputies reported seeing a no-vacancy sign hanging above one that read, Now Hiring. I'm sorry I can't offer you a place to stay, Terry, Sam had told him the night before. I mean an extra bed. She smiled to cover her discomfort. She couldn't decide what bothered her more, that she lived like a graduate student in a rented room, or that she didn't know where Terry would choose to sleep if she had her own space, or where she'd want him to sleep. No problem. I'll fend off nosy reporters with my famous glower. An hour before the 2 p.m. press conference, Sam, Abdi, and Terry stood in Sam's office and munched on sandwiches brought in by one of the deputies. Seems murder is good for business, Abdi noted. Terry shrugged. Retailers might as well cash in. Maybe people have persuaded themselves the wedding crasher is shopping for victims in Nashville instead of up the street. And leaving them here, Sam asked. No one responded. Kaylee stuck her head in the door. Mr. Jakes has arrived. She stood aside for a short, neatly dressed man with curly black hair and round brown eyes behind rimless glasses. Getting crowded out there, he observed with a jovial smile. Are you going to be able to keep this contained, Calvin? 
Terry asked. That's my job, Agent Sloan. You and Sheriff Tate will be there to answer a few questions. Keep your responses short. Emphasize that information is still coming in. And assure your audience that as you have said information, you will share it. I haven't asked anyone else to the platform. I know how some local officials like to talk, but I don't think that needs to happen here. Am I correct, Sheriff? I work for them, Mr. Jakes, not the other way around. They've agreed not to say anything at this press conference, but I can't guarantee what happens afterwards. One step at a time, then. Shall we go? Jake stood on the makeshift platform in front of the municipal building with Sam and Terry on either side. Terry looked relaxed, his pants pressed, his blue shirt crisp under his blazer. Sam felt exhausted. The dark circles of sweat under her arms mirrored those under her eyes. She left her sunglasses off. She didn't want to come across as a caricature of a county sheriff. She felt vulnerable exposed in the bright April sun. Don't squint, she reminded herself. Make your face blank. Behind the mask she adopted, she scanned the audience. Is the killer here? she wondered. Standing among the reporters and bystanders, pretending to be interested. Secretly amused? Or thrilled? Jake's read the prepared statement outlined what he called the rules of engagement, five minutes for questions, tops, and pointed at the sea of waving hands. Agent Sloan, can you say definitively this is the wedding crasher? Sam recognized the reporter from the Tennessean. Terry stepped to the mic. Not yet. The evidence indicates that it may be. That's why I'm here. Do you know why he skipped a year? An Associated Press correspondent asked. We're working on theories about that. Isn't six years a long time for a case to be open, Agent Sloan? The question came from a cable news reporter. Sam couldn't see which outlet. The case didn't move to the FBI until the third victim. Still, an open-ended case like this is troubling. The infrequency of the murders and the change in locations are inhibiting factors in catching this particular perpetrator. But we will catch whoever did this. Jake's moved in. Thank you, Agent Sloan. Now, if there are no more... Sheriff Tate? How do you feel about having a serial killer back in your county? Sarah Moss from Channel 5, directly to Sam. No way of deflecting. I don't know that I have a serial killer in my county, Sarah. Sam answered carefully. The victim was from Nashville, two hours away. The killer might be passing through. This may not be, she almost said, a serial murder at all, but caught herself just in time. No point in muddying the waters. Anything we can solve overnight. But we will solve this case because what I do have is a dead woman in Pickett County. And I take that very seriously. She stepped back, relieved to be out of the spotlight. Her respite turned out to be short-lived. Over the next few days, she discovered the press had become enamored of Sheriff Sam Tate. Some seemed to romanticize her past, the unsuccessful attempt at a singing career, the praiseworthy tour in Afghanistan, the commendations she received as detective, the tragic loss of her fiancé. 
Others saw in her unexpected promotion to sheriff a story of female empowerment. At the same time, the current situation encouraged darker speculation. How did the wedding crasher happen to appear in Pickett County just after then-detective Sam Tate arrived? Did the killer follow her? Had he settled in the area? Was he taunting her? Might she become the next victim? And by the way, how did she feel about once again pairing with the handsome FBI agent, who also happened to be single? Sam stormed into the conference room three days after the press conference and threw down a print copy of a national paper. Did you see this garbage? She asked Harry. They make it sound like we're starring in a TV movie. What the hell am I supposed to tell the mayor or the commissioners? Tell them you're trying to do your job. Or tell them to let the press know. They seem to be pretty cozy with the fourth estate. Birdstown Mayor Jerry O'Neill and Pickett County Executive Billy Owens kept mum the first day. After that, they engaged the reporters one-on-one, a strategic deployment that combined Southern charm and aggressive promotion of Pickett County as a lovely place to visit and live. Sam wasn't sure if their maneuvers helped or hurt. Calls and visitors threatened to overrun the sheriff's office. Sam finally hired a woman named Becky Rattle to physically keep out anyone who did not have legitimate police business. Becky, a 50-year-old woman with short salt-and-pepper hair and a voice roughened by years of cigarettes and whiskey, worked as a bouncer at a dive bar out on Route 111. She proved impervious to threats, bribes, promises, or lectures about the First Amendment. Sam also assigned a young deputy named Seth Yardley to work with the FBI's cyber division. Years earlier, the FBI set up a website dedicated to information about the wedding crasher case. The purpose was twofold, to educate the public and to provide a counterpoint to the sensationalist and often erroneous media reports. After a period of relative quiet, the site was now in danger of crashing. While some people logged on to get new information, others posted lengthy commentary or claims about new information. Each and every lead had to be tracked down, no matter how far-fetched. Seth, a local boy, proved more than equal to the task of ferreting out the conspiracy theorists. Bitsy Newsom's funeral was held in Nashville, just over a week after the discovery of the body. Most of the press moved to cover the services, which gave Birdstown a much-needed respite. Nashville's mayor, the police commissioner, and a number of corporate and political types figured among the several hundred mourners, along with family and friends. Neither Sam nor Terry attended, though at least one Pickett County commissioner did. Among the marquee names were those of Representatives Dora Briscoe and Lincoln Charles. Sam found their presence interesting enough to merit further research. Briscoe represented Nashville. The high-profile case warranted an appearance. The congressional district, covered by Lincoln Charles, included 17 counties far east of the city. Why did the representative from the neighboring district show up at the funeral of a local real estate broker? At her desk the following day, she typed in Lincoln Charles and Bitsy Newsom. No shortage of stories about Charles, who held several key House committee appointments. 
the man seemed more than capable of getting the press to cover him. His sparsely populated district loved him, returning him time and time again to D.C. Predictably, Newsom's public profile was thinner and limited to articles on her engagement, an appointment to a position at Cheekwood, and an industry award she won. Most of the press coverage came after her death. On a hunch, Sam paired Charles with Mark Talcott. More interesting. Several stories with images attached showed the two shaking hands over the course of 15 or 20 years. Further reading revealed that Talcott, who grew up in the small town of Salina, Tennessee, met the congressman during a high school field trip and ended up as a summer intern the next year. He went back to work in the congressman's office between college and law school. According to the Tennessean, Talcott and Newsom planned to move to D.C. after their spring marriage. No mention as to whether Lincoln Charles helped make that happen. However, the congressman attended the couple's lavish engagement party and Newsom's funeral. Selena, whose population remained steady at just under 1,500 people, was a very small town. Claire Hooper was from Selena, Sam recalled, and a few years behind Talcott. She'd moved a little closer to Nashville, but her family remained in place. Talcott had attended college in-state and went east for law school. Then he came back and spent a few years with the office of the district attorney general, which prosecuted all crimes committed within a seven-county district. Just two years ago, he joined a private law firm in Nashville. Two years, Sam said aloud, and the fog lifted. You've been listening to The Wedding Crasher by Nikki Stern. Next week, Sam zeroes in on a couple of suspects, including the fiancé of the victim, an ambitious lawyer with an eye on Washington, D.C., Meanwhile, excitement fades and Terry goes back to Tampa, leaving Sam to deal with local bureaucracy and a murder she still believes is more than it seems. Don't forget, on Wednesday, we have episode four of Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Marilla realizes Anne doesn't know how to pray, so she takes it upon herself to teach her about religion. And also discusses her former, quote, friends, unquote, both imaginary, Katie Maurice, her reflection that she used to pretend was another girl, and her echo, who she pretended was a friend named Violetta. What is Marilla to do? Thanks so much for listening. If you like my podcast, please leave me a review or subscribe. Thanks again. See you on Wednesday. Wednesday.